Welcome to this episode of Talking Constitutions, a series of podcasts in which we explore the constitutional arrangements that frame the day-to-day affairs of politics and that affect our lives in a myriad of ways. Our subject today is historical constitutions, looking at the ways in which history forms part of constitutions and also the ways in which history is deployed in interpreting constitutions. My name is John Hudson, and with me today are Jill Harris, Colin Kidd, and Harshan Kumarasingham. Jill Harris is Professor Emeritus of Ancient History at the University of St Andrews. Her books include Cicero and the Jurists, From Citizens' Law to the Lawful State, and Imperial Rome, AD 284-363, The New Empire. Colin Kidd is Professor of Modern History at the University of St Andrews, and frequent contributor to the New Statesman, London Review of Books, and other august organs of the press. Harshan Kumarasingham is Senior Lecturer in British Politics at the University of Edinburgh and is co-convener of the Arthur Berridale Keith Forum on Commonwealth Constitutionalism. So let's start off with the most basic of points. What are the remits, purposes and functions of constitutions? Let's start off with you, Joe. Thank you. I'm going to start with a vulnerable statement that the primary purpose of constitutions is the description and regulation of the powers of government institutions in relation to each other and the governed. I'd add to that that modern views of what constitutions should be include the need for constitutions to guarantee the freedoms of citizens from abuses of power by governments, and particularly now, more explicit guarantees of human rights. Now, in the ancient world, there are a number of differences which I just wish to mention briefly. Firstly, the concept of citizenship itself was very exclusive indeed, Women, slaves and alien residents did not count as citizens and they had no right of participation. Therefore, the constitutions of ancient cities applied in practice only to a minority of a given population. Under the Roman Empire from 212 onwards, however, the vast majority of the male adult population were citizens, but the exclusions that I've mentioned still applied. That's the first point, exclusivity of citizenship. The second is that the remits of ancient constitutions were far more holistic than they are today, particularly in the Greek world. They applied not only to forms of government, but to education, family life, the military and economic activity. Thirdly, because the divisions between public and private as concepts were different from what they are today, ancients found it very hard to differentiate in practice between a written constitution and a law code. And fourthly, although the ancients had a concept of the autonomy of law, they did not lay any emphasis at all on the independence of the judiciary from political control. Those are four differences I've identified. There's one overlap I'd also like to highlight, which is that the Romans in particular had a strong sense of the need for citizens to be protected from abuse by the powerful. Hence the institution of the uh, tribunate, which were officials especially tasked with protecting the interests of the plebs, that's to say the poorer, less privileged members of society. Common, we've had perspectives there from the modern period and from the contemporary world and from the ancient period. What would you like to add to Jill's picture? Yes, well, I think... Um insofar as constitutions are discussed at present, we tend to focus on them as um, something that limits uh, the power uh, of of government. Um, Obviously, we we look at other factors too, accountability, uh, the structure um, of government, entrenchment of law and so forth. But I think the main focus of modern constitutionalism has been on constitutions as limitations on power. 
But um, this has been called into question ju- just in the past year by by, by Linda Colley's uh, splendid uh, new, new book, uh, Gunship and Pen, where she where she argues that um, co- constitutions are about legitimising um, fiscal military states and um, uh, ensuring legitimacy of, of of government at a time when um, additional stresses uh, are placed on the population, whether through taxation or military recruitment and, and so forth. So we get this this picture that it's that the the story of constitutions and constitutionalism is, is actually much more mixed. And in this conversation, I'll mainly be addressing uh, the American constitution. And I have to say, if we look at the period uh, in in uh, the late 1780s and early 1790s, when we see the Constitution and then and then the the bit the, the Bill of Rights framed and 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 ratified, we see that Americans did want their their new government to be to be energetic, uh, to be able to compete in um, a world a threatening world of of great powers, but a government that was energetic but perhaps not too energetic in other words it was a there was a, a balance that they sought between uh, an energized government and some form of limitations on power as well awesome thank you john and thank you for having me as part of this um panel i i think um to building on um jules and uh, Colin's points. Uh, something that I think of when about the about what constitutions are for, um, taking perhaps a, a slightly different angle, is something that interests me, which is how constitutions have often been used throughout history as a means to assert uh, national identity and 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 power, often over others, but also sometimes over um, internal groups within within a particular society. And, and that is um, something that hasn't um, changed, but it also works, I think, the, the other way around where many people have sought who do not necessarily have power, but have crafted and proclaimed uh, constitutions, whether legitimate or otherwise, as a way of um, proclaiming their individual stake, if you like, in, in a particular society or state or region. Colin, picking up again from what you said about your concentration being on the American Constitution and Jill's contrast between the ancient and contemporary constitutions, could you say a bit more about how you think constitutions are influenced by their historical settings? Yes, I, I would, but I'd, I'd like to preface my remarks by, by, by saying that um, Strangely, um, constitutions have become much less interesting to historians um, in in the past um, half half century or even or even or even century. I I think this goes back to uh, Herbert Butterfield's critique of the Whig interpretation of history, and particularly in in in, in the British world, we've seen a focus on social and cultural history, and to some extent, constitutional history is. Is I think generally derided uh, by by most historians in Britain. I, I think this is not so true in in the American world, but certainly uh, in Britain. And it's it's unfortunate because I think this is a topic. Uh, constitutional constitutions come at the at the confluence of law, political science, and history, and it, and it, it needs all three elements to make sense uh, of, of 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 the phenomenon. And, and yet I think historians have, have certainly in recent decades taken a back seat, which is most unfortunate because I think we can only understand constitutions from their uh, historical settings. For example, the American Constitution is framed uh, at, a, at a point when the, um, uh, the culture uh, of late 18th century Americans was absolutely um, that they were immersed in, uh, in, in, in the classics. And um, very, very conscious of of ancient uh, parallels, but they're all, but they were also part of a, a phenomenon uh, that we might call the American Enlightenment. So that as well as being uh, backward looking towards precedents from 
the, the ancient world and warnings as to how to structure government, they also had uh, some degree of, of optimism about, about the future and about um, human potentiality to, to construct, um, as they saw it, uh, a constitutional machinery of separated powers, of checks and balances that might um, overcome the, um, the innate tendency, as they saw it, of, of Republican government to degenerate either into anarchy or to some form of tyranny. And they knew all too well that, um, that from republics had risen figures like Julius Caesar or Oliver Cromwell. And the, I think despite their enlightenment optimism, there was also a great deal of pessimism. They had, the American revolutionaries had lived through a world in which uh, Sweden uh, had had lost its constitutional form of government in 1772, the same year that the, the Polish limited monarchy had been uh, partitioned. Although th the constitution coincides with the early stages of the French Revolution and is often seen in terms of, as it were, um, a history of upwards and onwards, the participants at the time didn't didn't know how things would turn out. And they were also acutely conscious of the way that um, things could go wrong with Republican government. Jill, this focus on Republican government, the classical background and so on, takes us back very much into your world. What would you like to add to what Colin has said? I think it's very important to understand this connection between the classical world and the thinkers of the Enlightenment and what happens with the American Constitution and indeed the, aisles, the, the ideas surrounding the French Revolution as well. There's one important distinction that has to be made when one thinks about ancient constitutions. On the one hand, you have the reality of their functioning. And on the other, you have the representation of their functioning by other people, often, as Harshan has observed already, for ideological reasons. When we look at the reality of the historical settings for constitutions and constitutional ideas in the ancient world, they start from small face-to-face -face societies. And a lot of what happens in political communities where people will recognize each other by face, if not by anything else, uh, is that you have to have community consent for things to work. And the community itself is governed by an unwritten collective memory. And that's why the unwritten element in these constitutions is so important. The point about ideology relates particularly to the Spartan constitution. We have no Spartan evidence for the Spartan constitution whatsoever, but it was idealized by Greek thinkers all over the place who reflected both the Spartans' ideology and their own. A point I'd like to make about representation, which I think is relevant to assumptions we make now, is that in the ancient world, there was no preference for any one form of the three primary forms, that's monarchy, aristocracy, and democracy. And in fact, democracy had a particularly hard time because most of the writers were elite and they didn't like democracy, so they didn't like to champion it. What they were all agreed about, and I think this then becomes echoed in the ideology of the American Revolution, was that tyranny was a very bad idea. And they defined tyranny as the oppressive rule by one section of the community, be it a sole ruler, a clique or a mob, and those are the three degenerate forms uh, of the ideal forms. And the final point I'd like to make, again relating to the small face-to-face -face society, is the emphasis on the moral character of the citizen body. States could fail if, say, the ruling elite was corrupted by greed and bribery, if inequality got out of hand, and that's a very important topic nowadays, or if the demos was softened up by free handouts. Oh, sure. 
coming to the settings that I'm most familiar with and interested in, and that is, I suppose, the the British the British world and the imperial uh, world, the settings of um, constitution making and constitution understanding were critical because of that imperial experience, both in at Westminster, but also the component parts of what is now the United Kingdom, but also in the various parts of the wider British Empire. And uh, for example, I think uh, as as this year is the 75th anniversary of Indian independence in August um, 1947, and there, when their constituent assembly uh, came into being, and 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 again linking to what Jill was saying, some of the ideas of 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 Rome, but also of um, India's ancient civilizations, also came into the thinking of ideas and understandings of what constitutions meant and what they should be doing, and as as well as ideology and political gain, were came into the fore. And the Indian elite, and they were unquestionably an elite that came in at Delhi, were thinking of not only of what their wants were uh, politically and ideologically, but also of the colonial past and what had been happening under the British. So then there was a, a curious but in some ways natural mix of all of these things at play, and that me- allowed India I think, at least, to craft what I've called an Eastminster, which had aspects of um, the colonial experience, the British constitutional ideas, but also their own. So I think historical settings are more critical than perhaps we uh, we uh, we give credit for. Uh, and India is just one example, but there are several others in the settings that I um, examine. And I think historians. Can, should take the opportunity that constitutions uh, provide to see the wider facets of society and people and power uh, when understanding the histories of these states and their broader surroundings. Hashem, I'd like to take this on a little bit further from what you just said. So far, we've been talking about history as setting, be it the historical situation or the historical mindset and formation of constitutional makers. But can history at times be seen as forming part of a constitution? Is there, constitution, is there a historical element within constitutions? I would say um, without question, yes, um, that, that history is, is very much part of a constitution and, and vice versa. And, the, and 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 again, um, coming back to the point that was made earlier about this, you know, um, the previous thinkings in history of the, or some thinkings in history of the inevitable progress of a of a society and of a constitution. Um, you know, if, if someone actually does go and, and looks through the history, they see that actually there's it's often built of um, of accidents, uh, reversals. And, and problems and and contestation uh, and these are rather than some you know linear uh, development and I know we'll be talking a little later about the differences between written and unwritten uh, constitutions but I, I was just reflecting about the this question and I I, I think of a, a for me at least a wonderful work by G H L LeMay on on the Victorian. Uh, constitution and and I was just reflecting uh, about it and uh, about how so many things in 2022 at least or uh, we we think of as you know absolute about the, the say if we confine ourselves to the British Constitution about things like um, parliamentary condition as a parliamentary majority as a condition of taking office a ruling party enjoying autonomy and cabinet selection the speech from the throne and matters of defence and foreign policy are the gov- being the government's responsibility unshared uh, with the monarch or or other ideas such as the House of Commons being the dominant institution of the constitution or cabinet is collectively responsible, responsible or even that the monarch is obliged to follow the advice of the administration only came of age, if you like, you know, just over a, a century ago, 
and 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 even then were very much contested. So the, the, the history and the ideas that come with it, as well as the practice of power, I think, uh, which have cha- which change and are changing, are very much part of this. And and uh, and 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 what we take of as history are often are. Um, to put it at, at a basic level, are uh, just in some ways recording what others did uh, and, and did not do with um, with things like constitutions and the power that they had or sought to have. Colin. Yes. Well, I think um, hist- history is certainly interwoven with constitutions, and um, as Harshan says, it's it, it's clearly the case. For example, in the what you might call the Anglo-British. Uh, constitution it's it's one where um history is deeply uh, interwoven with the organic um uncodified uh, de- development of of that constitution it's slightly uh, different in the um in the, in the in the american case because um here there, there there are more distinct more more discrete if you like constitutional moments for, for, for example, the um, the primary constitutional uh, moment of the late 1780s and early 1790s, where, where, where we see the the framing of of the constitution itself, and then uh, the the subsequent uh, framing of, of 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 the bill of bill of rights, which was meant as a a counterpoint to the constitution, and then I suppose the next period uh, we see is 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 that of reconstruction in the in the 1860s after after the american civil war when we see a um a, a group of uh, major amendments uh to, to to the constitution the 13th uh, ending ending slavery the 14th uh, granting racial uh well what 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 was what looked like racial equality it turned out to be more notional than that um, in subsequent decades and 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 the fifteenth amendment uh, granting uh, the vote to, uh, to to other races that 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 period uh, was seen as a as it were a distinct constitutional moment and I, I suppose the, 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 the there is a third one which is slightly more um, anomalous in the 1930s. Uh, It's not one where there's change through the formal amendment process, but it's one where the Supreme Court itself, under considerable democratic uh, pressure from the result of both uh, presidential and congressional elections, um, more or less caves in in its attitude to, uh, as as it were, um, the modern activist uh, extended regulatory state that that um, emerges to meet the the demands of the um, depression great depression during during the 1930s and so in in the case of, of the American constitution we can certainly see three major constitutional moments but I think it's also a more complicated story than that because I think America also has sort of multiple paths that it that are embodied in its constitution, and in, and in particular, there is considerable deference um, to um, to the English uh, English past. And obviously, as you yourself know, John, the um, the rotunda at, at at Runnymede, where Magna Carta uh, was was signed in 1215, uh, that that rotunda constructed in I, I believe 1957 was put up there by the American Bar Association. So there's there is this sense that um, American law has has this um, this great English uh, inheritance too, which 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 is reflected in uh, the importance of precedent in in in, in American. Uh, Common American common law system, so it's a it's a complicated story and 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 not and not simply one that is tied to America. Sure. There are a number of difficulties in working out what the Romans are doing with their history. What we know of Roman constitutional thought relating to their republic dates from the late second and first centuries BC. The history to which they refers, referred goes back to the 8th century BC. 
and records for that time were pretty well non-existent. So we're talking here very much about an imagined history. And there are two particular crucial constitutional points, picking up on what Colin has already said. One is the period of the early kings from the mid 8th century to the early 6th. Uh, and the second is the passing of the laws of the Twelve Tables in round about 450. Most ancient states liked the idea of having a lawgiver, whether he or they existed or not. Rome did very well in having seven of them, although the last one was terrible and didn't make any laws and was ex expelled as a tyrant. The institutions of government, institutions of religion, institutions of the army, were all ascribed to the early kings. That's the first constitutional point, but that's not necessarily true at all. The second, uh, the laws of the Twelve Tables. Now, this law code, insofar as we have it, and it only survives in fragments, was in fact a code of private law. It should not, if we're talking about constitutions government, be called a constitution at all. Nonetheless, it is treated as a constitution by later historians. It is regarded as a place where you'll find out about legal rights and redress. Uh, and uh, it is recited by school children in their schools routinely, uh, as uh, was to be the case with later constitutions. So these two points have a truly iconic status, neither of which can be historically verified. The other point I'd make in relation to Harshan is, yes, the Romans' idea of their history did include contestation, particularly as regards the powers of the people. After the kings were expelled in 510 uh, BC, uh, there was a long period during which the people and the uh, elite uh, struggled for power, and that included the people seceding, uh, withdrawing their labour, which meant withdrawing it from the army, leaving the Romans defenceless. Uh, in the end, this was resolved. Now, again, this may not be uh, true to the history, but it does show that the Romans did see that constitutional success was in part the product of a process of contestation. Jim, I think a lot of constitutions have some sense of having the people, whatever is meant by that, as the constituent power. How far is that constituting process seen as a historical one? But I think here we should address a modern problem that people who engage in constitutional theory have. The people as a constitutional entity are constituted by the constitution, but their prior existence is required for consent to the creation of the constitution in the first place. That is something that bothers the theorists. I don't think it should bother historians so much. Uh, because we talk about the process in action, um, and that may be a useful interface to pursue when we're looking at interdisciplinary progress, uh, as we were uh, mentioning earlier. Second point is that we must not ever equate the constituent power of the people with democracy because certainly the ancients did not do that. What they did think, though, was that some kind of popular endorsement was required to legitimate the decisions of their leaders. So if we take, for example, again, um, the early kings, and remember that this is imagined history, in most of the cases of the early kings, the people endorse the choice of a king. That is all they do. The king then decides what reforms he's going to carry out, what innovations he is going to make, 
and he carries them out. They are legitimate because the people have agreed his choice in the first place. So that's the first way in which constituent power is exercised. And it's exercised without any information being given as to its institutional form. We are not told that. It is just the consent somehow or other is forthcoming. Uh, the second example I've used, again I've mentioned before, is that the 12 tables is represented as being compiled by a board of 10. They do the hard work. But once that work is done, the people are consulted. We are not told how. And it's only when they have ratified the whole thing that it is published. And publication is regarded as a necessary part of the process of making this law code legitimate. So the accumulated effect of these episodes is to show how the people must be a presence in what goes on in terms of providing the ultimate authority, but they are not involved in the detailed working out um, of these um, documents or uh, these processes or the creation of these institutions. Colin, what would you like to add from an American or any other perspective? Yes, well, in, in, in the case of, of the American Constitution, of course, it, the, the, the preamble begins, we the people, which all sounds very uncomplicated about the role of, of the people as a constituent power. But of course, it is a bit more complicated than that, because um, uh, these, these people uh, already had a form of government. They, they already had a form of government in the form of the Articles of Confederation. And when um, the convention Constitutional Convention met in in 1787, they were effectively exceeding uh, the powers that the Articles of Confederation uh, gave them. And Bruce Ackerman has also noted that the very term convention is uh, an allusion uh, to uh, a longer English Whig history and a, a reference back to the to a convention being a, a parliamentary-like body that wasn't a full parliament, uh, and referring back to the to the glorious revolution uh, of, of of 1688 uh, in England, there's also a sense uh, in in America that there's a a, a revolutionary tradition of, of of popular sovereignty going back to their to their own revolution, and there's also the further complicating factor that that these we the people uh, are also found in 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 13 different states each each of which has its own uh, set of constitutional arrangements so um we the people is not it's not a straightforward issue and when um we, we can see something of this in the in the second uh, federalist uh, paper by by john jay where he he um he waxes lyrical on the the commonalities, essentially sort of English and Whiggish commonalities that 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 unite uh, the people, the people of, um, of 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 the United States. So it's a it's a complicated uh, issue. It's not as straightforward or devoid of historical resonance as that simple expression "We the people" would suggest. Ashan, do, does the situation seem similar from the constitutions you examine? Uh, it, I, it, it does, actually. And even from, as, as Jill and helpfully said, from the Roman and ancient uh, period. And I, I was, when um, I was listening to the others, it, it, I recalled, a, for me at least, an illustrative quote from Sir Ivor Jennings, who was not only an, an, a scholar of the British Constitution, uh, but also of, was, had a, an important hand in shaping and writing constitutions across the then decolonizing world in the mid um, 20th century. And when he when he was asked about um, how the people uh, fit in, he, he in, in the constitutions, he famously said, um, the people cannot decide until someone decides who the people are. Um, and 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 it, it made me um, think 
also about uh, not only the the idea of definition of but uh, but in, indeed what uh, Jill was saying about having in some ways the sanction of of the people even if they're not explicitly participating in the exercise itself and and in some ways that was something that you see it's 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 in some ways too tempting to think of it how we may do today about how people are involved in in constitutions when that was in some ways not not I wouldn't say taken for granted in the past but it was taken in, in a different manner uh, from how we might see it today and and, and so much of these it was for example, if we look at the decolonization experience, especially in the in the in the 20th century, um, some as vast as Asia, for example, of of Britain's former empire, there the people's opinion, whether that be at the the voting or in um, a referenda or in um, participating in their uh, representatives, was almost negligent. Uh, sorry, negligible in terms of their numerics being involved. And yet that wasn't necessarily perceived, at least by their leaders, as being a a problem. And and even the uh, idea of having something like a constituent assembly, uh, thinking of what um, Colin was saying about places like Philadelphia and and so on, was largely absent um, in, in much of the decolonizing world, not because it was denied, as we might think, perhaps, by, say, the imperial power saying, no, you can't have a constituent assembly, but rather that it was not seen as a, a necessity in in, um, in formulating or in some ways transacting uh, power. Uh, and, and, and instead, leaders were seen, these elites were often seen as being the credible and legitimate expression of uh, often not necessarily the wider people, but of their constituency, uh, however we may um, um, define it. And again, to to close my comments on this with another quote, which I think um, speaks to this, Richard Crossman has, uh, at least in my view, a wonderful introduction to Badgett's uh, um, English constitution, now over 150 years old, said that Badgett uh, perpetuated the idea of the the acquiescence of the many in the rule of the few, and um, in some ways that has <laughs> that theme um, certainly is not an old one and is certainly not dead. Uh, it carries on in in many different forms uh, well into the present era. Colin, various of these remarks make me wonder about how history is used in the interpretation of constitutions. I'm thinking partly about constitutional courts and so on, but also more widely in political discourse. This is a major issue, not only in American constitutional jurisprudence, but in in, in the wider culture uh, too. And here, really since since the 1980s, there's been a, a, a clash between two major Um, historical approaches to the American constitution. On the one hand is what is called originalism. Um, There's a constitution that's that's set out in in, in black and white and that it's it's the duty of of the courts to defer to that uh, constitution. Uh, On the other hand, there's there's what's called the the notion of the living constitution, uh, the no, the notion that um, that attitudes, culture, uh, and so forth evolve, and, and and that to some extent, even with a written constitution, it must evolve, albeit within certain parameters, with with the changing uh, tastes and manners and so forth of the people. And I'll I'll, I'll give you a concrete example uh, of this, where in the in the Eighth uh, Amendment of, of the Bill of Rights, it, it talks about a, a ban on cruel and unusual punishment. It's quite clear that what uh, cruel and unusual punishment meant in, in an 18th century 
of, of what we would now think of as rather rather barbaric uh, punishments and so forth. That 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 meant something very very different from what now would be treated as 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 cruel and unusual. Now, I ought to add further that originalism itself is not uh, a straightforward uh, deference uh, to the text because there are essentially two main schools of of originalism. Uh, one one is the notion based on the notion of uh, original intent. What was the intent of uh, the framers of the Constitution? What, 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 what did they intend to institute? On the other hand, there's a different kind of originalism, which is an originalism of, of meaning or accepted understanding. In other words, what what was the text taken to mean when the different state ratifying conventions ratified the Constitution uh, and, and, and the Bill of Rights? Though, as the historian Jack Rakoff um, stresses, um, what you have here is a rather contested terrain. You've got you've got framers and ratifiers and ratifiers in the different states. How 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 can you come up with a single uh, common uh, opinion here? There's no single uh, definition. And this whole issue of um, uh, how far uh, history plays a role in constitutional interpretation is further complicated by the Anglo-American common law inheritance in, in uh, American law, where you have deference to precedent, what is called stare decisis, that the court must abide by precedent. Um, and uh, well, it's actually not obliged to, but but the lower courts have to abide by precedent. The Supreme Court can overrule precedent, but when it shows that a, a precedent is 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 definitively wrong. But so you have a, a complex history here that even if uh, a judge were trying to conform to the Constitution as set out, um, that judge is deferring both to the original text of the Constitution, but also trying to defer to the precedence of the Supreme Court itself. And sometimes uh, in the views of some judges, these, um, these two uh, sinusures um, come, into, come into conflict. And so uh, it, it, even, even with, uh, as it were, a written constitution, it's not a straightforward matter of deferring to history. Jill, would you like to pick up on that? Right. I'd like to focus on the second question that you raised, John, about the, uh, the exploitation of constitutional authority uh, in political discourse. Um, and I'd like to mention a few examples from antiquity of how constitutional authority is abused. Um, and in this connection, I'm defining it really as what is remembered or misremembered about constitutions um, and how this could be uh, perverted for political ends. Um, in other words, the invention of a fake past uh, is used to justify present actions. Um, my first example is from democratic Athens in 411. Athens was at war, facing defeat, and a group of oligarchs use their opportunity, make some false promises, and limit the access to citizenship with reference to what they called the ancestral constitution, which they ascribed to Solon, who lived about 200 years earlier. That's the first one, um, clearly false. And in fact, that oligarchy did not last very long. Second reference, equally false, uh, is in reference to Sparta. Uh, now, the Lycurgan constitution is described to the lawgiver Lycurgus, who lived in, who didn't live, but he's supposed to have lived in the 8th century BC. In the 3rd century BC, a Spartan king claim, admits, makes a set of reforms and claims that this is a return to the Lycurgan constitution. Now, the point about Lycurgus's setup 
was that it prevented tyranny by creating a balance of powers. What Cleomenes' forms actually did was to remove the limits on the powers of the king, thus allowing him to become a tyrant, the very opposite of what the Lycurgan constitution was supposed to be about. And thirdly, and perhaps more broadly, something that hasn't been brought up in the Roman connection yet, is that the sheer lack of shape of the Roman constitution um, allowed for people to make of it what they wished, and uh, in particular with reference to the custom of the ancestors, so-called, uh, which again is supposed to depend on, well, this is what everybody thinks, but in fact it's not what everybody thinks, it's what everybody is made to think um, by uh, such eloquent deceivers uh, as Cicero. Um, and Cicero could even push it to the point uh, that uh, by um, reference to the ancestors and what they thought was right, if he believed that uh, system was a threat, he believed that even violence, which is one of the great dangers of the constitutional order, could be used justifiably if the constitution failed. Arshan, would you like to pick up on what John's just said? If we in some ways go back to um, an intervention that um, and contribution that Colin made about the um, how history as a discipline has not um, done as much in terms of active constitutional history for the past so many decades, um, it's it's interesting to think about how much that gap has been filled, at least in the more contemporary period, uh, by those who study law. And 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 in some ways we to ask why why have lawyers or law scholars and 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 actually practicing lawyers turned to history um, more than say historians have in the last um, so many decades and I think some of that comes to the use of history um, at least as as some lawyers see it or at least used to see history as filling the gaps of the law and and as as a, a form of utility. Um, to use in, 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 in cases. And even though someone like Dicey, for example, saw history as history of the Constitution as mere antiquarianism, in his words, um, nonetheless, he was he was adept at using history to further his own um, concepts, such as things like parliamentary sovereignty or, or relations with Ireland um, and the empire, and the centrality of Westminster over other parts of the of, of the uh, British political world, and and and, and uh, at least from my perspective, I've I've always found that quite fascinating how history has been used by uh, those who practice or make laws uh, to fulfil uh, their own objectives, and that by by no means is something unique, but nonetheless is I think a, a fascinating uh, process, and of course. Inevitably, there is a selective use of historical precedent uh, in, 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 in putting forward a particular case. And, and obviously, historians do that themselves. It's not that this is a, <laughs> a failing of lawyers. Historians do that too. But it, it's, it's an interesting utilization, I think, of, of history in terms of interpretation, which has um, often has um, greater ramifications uh, than some of some, at least at the time, may have thought possible, such as how Dicey, for example, would imagine what parliamentary sovereignty, as we think, a hundred years after the the treaty with Ireland, uh, what that would mean today, um, and and whether he he took that to mean what that would mean before Anglo-Irish relations, for example, or indeed our relationship uh, with Brussels and Europe and the wider world. I, I just want to finish with one final question because it's something that's recurred throughout. And in all the topics we've been talking about, could you just sort of have some final words about what the difference it make, what difference it makes if a constitution is written or if a constitution is unwritten? Harshan, you mentioned this, so would you start us off on that final question? Certainly. Well, as as um 
someone who comes from purportedly one of the three countries that doesn't have a um, written constitution, namely New Zealand. It's, it's I think it's, uh, well, it's it's an interesting um, phenomena, a cult, I think more of a cultural one than a, than a necessarily a constitutional one, uh, because of course it doesn't, unwritten doesn't mean any society or any legislature or any executive can do as they wish, uh, but more that the, in some ways takes a greater power uh, comes forth in terms of things that we come to, which were mentioned in passing, but things like conventions, which are in some ways the the the, the, the very firm understandings of how constitutions should operate, but don't necessarily have legal force, although sometimes in a complicated sense they do. I suppose it enables, um, coming back to comparing and contrasting with um, what Colin is speaking about today, about the American ideas, although again, there are more similarities than we, we think about things of like originalism and formalism uh, when it comes, but again, again, it comes to the contextual understanding of so much of this, whether it be in a written or unwritten um, constitution. and. I often think that um, since it, my my closer area of expertise being the the British and imperial experience, and I, I think of the well, to help me understand, if you like, um, the difference between written and unwritten constitutions. I think of the the Italian political scientist Giovanni Satori, who, when he was looking at the British constitution um, in the 1960s, he said that it wasn't quite right to say that it was um, unwritten, but that it was written differently, um, which I, I, I find quite a, a useful in the sense of, uh, and, and, and his distinction, which I think, again, I find quite useful, was that when he was comparing, as he was, look at the, the British constitution to some of its counterparts, especially in Europe, he was saying that a British constitutional scholar or even an MP um, would, would see not, and said, what could not be done, but more, how could we get it done? Um, and, and that was, um, 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 I think, a, a useful way of, of seeing the, the possibilities, if you like, of an of a unwritten constitution where there are more of a, a jumble of different sources, laws, as well as culture, as well as politics, as well as um, statutes and so on that come together that to, and there is a possibility through history but also through expedience of seeing what might be done or might be understood and I think that's a, a way of doing that but again to emphasize that's not to say that doesn't happen in constitutions that are written quote unquote because as as, as Colin was implying um, that's very much part of somewhere we do think of as and they think is very firmly written, the American Constitution. Colin, would you like to take that up? Yes, I mean, I, I'd, I'd like to echo what, what, what Harshan has just said about the importance of the, the wider culture here. Because after all, if we, if we are, say, looking at the contrast between the British and American uh, constitutional traditions with, with, with reference to uses of the past, what we see in the, the modern day United States is we see a, um, a kind of cult of ancestor uh, worship in which the, the founding fathers, the framers of the, of, of the Constitution are, are, are extended a, a tremendous sort of reverence in, 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 in the wider culture and every, every year sees more and more sort of biographies of um, Madison and Hamilton and, and, and so forth. And we we contrast this with the relative indifference over here to our constitutional tradition. But it wasn't always like that, that if if one goes back to the world of the of the 19th century and the very early uh, 20th century, one can see something rather rather similar in uh, the Whig histories uh, of, of, of the time where, the, where, the, where there was, um, albeit in a very different way, uh, a more continuous story, uh, and a national uh, celebration of um, 
a Whiggish story of constitutional evolution. Now, why why does the United States still have have uh, uh, a, a, set, uh, a body of ancestor worship like this when, when 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 Britain has lost it? It's got nothing to do with whether the Constitution is written down in one place or not. It, it's something to do with external uh, cultural. Uh, factors and there are, of course there are plenty of other written constitutions in the world where there's nothing like the the um, the ancestor worship uh, accorded to the founding fathers in the United States. Now of course the obvious answer to your question is that um, it's all about uh, conventions. That um, conventions are much more important in in unwritten constitutional systems and I, and I suppose that's that's broadly true but I wouldn't want to overemphasize the difference to be fair um, the British story with with a, with an unwritten constitution is a is a largely continuous uh, history of of constitutional uh, development whereas in the United States it's something more like a, a story of punctuated equilibrium where there are distinct uh, moments of constitutional amendment that are that are then followed by um, eras of what you might call normal uh, normal constitutional um, practice but again it's it's not quite as straightforward as that because as I suggested earlier not all of the amendments or, or uh, or changes to the American constitutional tradition have come through the formal um, Article 5 amendment process. And in particular, the change, the major changes in the 1930s by the court did not come through anything like a formal amendment process. And we also have to take on board the role of stare decisis, of, um, of precedent in uh, constitutional law in in both systems, so I would I would um, caution against um, an exaggerated, cartoonish uh, version of the contrast between um, Britain's unwritten constitution and and, and America's uh, codified constitution. Andrew, you get our closing words. Well, picking up on what's been said already about founding fathers. Um, the ancient people had founding fathers, uh, but they called them lawgivers. Um, and a lot of the time, either they didn't exist at all, like Lycurgus, um, or they did have historical setting as Solon, but they were given more um, importance than they really deserved. The reason why they were so important was because they gave authority to the existing constitutional systems, which might very well be the result of evolution and not a single act. And they were also an assertion of the local identity, um, particularly an identity that was superior to other people's identities. So it was an important part of ancient Greek local, um, not just identity, but I don't like to say nationalism, but anyway, self-assertion. Self That's the first point. The second is that an unwritten constitution allowed for evolution and allowed for the constitution to be perfected over time. And this was something that the Romans thought was very important. This was how they got it right. It was they learned from experience. Um, and in, again, at this time when constitutional, uh, constitutional debate is at its height in the era of Cicero and the coming of Augustus, there was a debate between Rome as an evolutionary constitution, which is what Cicero thought, um, and Rome as actually a one-off creation, which is what the Greeks like to think, because they thought the best constitutions were one-off creations, even though in fact they were not. So there's quite a jumble here going on between um, what's written and what is unwritten in the sense of not being codified at any point, um, and various cultural considerations um, and competitions for status between different uh, states. Thank you. That's been a wonderful example of how historical perspectives enrich our understanding of the present and how present concerns show the fascination of the past. 
leads me to thank Joel Harris, Colin Kidd, and Harshan Kumar Singham, and thank you for listening.